Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I wanna ask you to take them and open them with me to Philippians chapter three for our time together in God's word this morning as we continue on in our series, Joy for the Journey. Joy for the Journey. And, and, and as we open God's word together and focus once again on this joy that we have in Jesus, I wanna ask you a question to really keep in mind and consider. And that question is simple, and yet at the same time, the answer to it can be very profound, and that question is this. In your life, are you living with the prize in mind? In your life, right now, as you live your life, right here in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of all sorts of cultural uh, divisions and, and confusions, are you living your life with the prize in mind? My hope and prayer in preparing for this message and preaching this message today is that God will give us a fresh perspective, a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is on what he's doing even today and what he's going to do in our future. We sang that song a moment ago, the Revelation song, as we're thinking about Christ seated on the throne in power and position and authority. And yet we live in the midst of a broken, fallen world where there is death and disease, division and destruction of all kinds. So the question for us in the midst of this challenging day is, are we living with the prize in mind. It's amazing how when we have a clear focus on a prize, how God uses that focus to help us to persevere and endure. But far more than just merely persevering and enduring, God also gives us joy as we focus on the prize. Let me illustrate that in a practical way. When I was in 10th grade, uh, the Lord blessed our school. I went to a private school in Montgomery, Alabama. When I was there in 10th grade, we were blessed that year to have a new teacher come to our school who taught English. He taught English, literature, grammar, kind of the whole bit for our high school, ninth through 12th grade. Her name was Miss Frazier. I'll never forget Miss Frazier. And the reason why I won't forget Miss Frazier first is because at first I did not like her. First off, I hated English. There was nothing about it I enjoyed. And as a sophomore, I thought, why does it really matter if I know where to put a comma or not? Like seriously, it, does this really matter in the grand scheme of life? Commas are not really that important. Neither are apostrophes, in my opinion, as a 10th grader. And so I really didn't like English class. Well, Miss Frazier came and the first day of class, she listened a lot, she took in a lot. The next day of class, she showed up with an empty milk jug. And then she announced to us, Miss Frazier had just moved to Alabama from Chicago. So she is from the big city. She came in and she said, I learned something the first day of school and that is that all of your language, all of your grammar, your speech is horrible. So here's what I'm gonna do. Every time you say y'all, ain't, shoulda, ought to, I mean anything, anytime you use those words, I'm gonna call you out and you have to put a quarter in the milk jug was God is my witness, by the end of the year, between ninth to 12th grade, we had over $2,000 that had come in that milk jug that went to a missionary, okay? Because from Alabama, y'all is just the way you say it. And I still say it to this day. Thank you, Ms. Frazier. I remember her well. But here's the other thing I remember about Ms. Frazier. That first semester in English class, frankly, I did not do very well. 
She was tough. She was probably the toughest teacher I ever had in high school. She was tough. She was demanding. Everything was in black or white. I mean, little grace at all. It was just bam, here it is, okay? But I'll never forget the second semester of my sophomore year of high school. The first day of that second semester, she stood up before our class, and I assume she did the same with the other classes, and here's what she said. She said, all of you have gotten the lowest grades in English of any students I have ever taught. That'll encourage you and bless you, okay? But I want to motivate you. I have a reward, I have a prize in store for every student who makes straight A's in English this semester. Here's what it is. She said on the first week of May, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls are flying to Atlanta, Georgia to play the Atlanta Hawks. And if you make straight A's this semester, I will not only take you and allow you to go, I will pay for your entire trip. I will take you if you make straight A's to watch the Chicago Bulls and the Atlanta Hawks. Now, can I just say to you as a sophomore in high school, that was like the era of basketball. Many of you are kind of becoming aware of that because you've been watching on ESPN lately, but here's reality. I was a Michael Jordan fan. Like I watched every play I could. I, I tuned in. I knew all the, the teammates. I knew all the statistics. And from the moment she said that, can I just tell you, it changed my entire perspective. It really did. It changed my perspective. I mean, literally, I hated English before, and now I was interested because it didn't matter the cost. It didn't matter the challenge. It didn't matter what it required of me. Guess what? I was going to make an A in English that semester. Now, I might have failed everything else, but I was going to make an A in English that semester. And I remember beginning to ask questions of the teacher. I remember staying late. I remember my mom rehearsing with me comma rules, when to put a comma, when not to put a comma. I remember going through all this stuff. But can I tell you, I didn't mind the cost when I had the prize in mind. And by God's grace and a lot of help, by the end of that semester, I got to go watch Michael Jordan absolutely scorch the Atlanta Hawks. It was incredible, right? Yeah. I, I didn't really expect an applause there, but thank you. I appreciate that, all right? He said, Pastor, what are you saying? Please understand, that was a temporary prize. That was something that didn't matter in eternity. Yes, there's some great memories there. Yes, I remember some of the buddies that were with me. Yes, I remember the hard work that I put in. But what I'm trying to say to you this morning is this. When I had my eye on the prize, I was able to persevere and I was able to endure. But not only that, guess what? I began to enjoy English. There was joy when I began to realize the prize that was in store. And what I want you to know this morning from Philippians chapter three is this. When you and I live our life today with the prize of the Lord Jesus Christ and our eternity with him in mind, friend, God gives incredible joy. Look with me at Philippians chapter three. If you're physically able, I wanna ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna begin reading verse seven where we kind of left off last week, but I'm really gonna focus in this morning on verses 12 through 16. Here's what the Bible says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, 
in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Listen to this statement, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. What is it? Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal it to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this precious time that we have to open your word. And God, I pray as we open your word that our hearts would be open to you, that you would speak to us, that you would guide us, convict us, and lead us. God, I pray today that you would give us a fresh glimpse of who you are. Give us a glimpse of the prize that awaits us in eternity. Give us a glimpse beyond the temporary here and now so that we live our life for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, you may be seated this morning. Joy in the prize. Fact of the matter is this morning is that it's very easy for us in the midst of living this falling, broken world to be distracted by all the challenges. There are so many things in our life that are distracting and can deter us from the focus that God is calling us to have on him and his word and the things that really matter for eternity. The apostle Paul could relate. In fact, as he penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, frankly, he could also speak from his own personal testimony of the circumstances and the trials. As he was there, had been imprisoned, his freedoms were limited, his future was uncertain, there were many unknowns. He didn't know how it was all gonna pan out. And yet in the midst of it all, even in the midst of circumstance and in the midst of great adversity and even suffering, Paul had great joy. I think we get a perspective of that in 2 Corinthians chapter four as we consider why Paul still had joy. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians four. He said, therefore, we do not lose heart but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed when? Day by day. Listen to this statement. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. While we look at the things which are seen, but at the things, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I would argue that most people have never faced the extent of suffering that the Apostle Paul himself faced. And yet in the midst of it all, he would say, listen, I want you to know these afflictions and these sufferings and these trials and circumstances, God is working in them to produce for us an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all of our human comprehension and understanding. In other words, Paul was living his life in light of the prize. Because he had his eye fixed on the prize, he was able to persevere and he was able to endure. And even the greatest of sufferings, he would say, it's just temporary, momentary, light affliction that is nothing compared to what God has in store for our future. Paul had joy as he focused on the prize and we can too. Well, how do we do that? How do we fix our life focused on the prize of what God is calling us to. And I would say to you from Philippians chapter three, there are three main applications, there are three main actions that I believe God is calling us to. 
So, Pastor, we live in a pandemic. Doesn't matter. It's still true. Pastor, we're living in a country that's divided. Doesn't matter. God's word is still true. Pastor, we live in a broken world. Doesn't matter. God's word is still true. What are three actions that he's calling us to? Number one, if we are going to find joy in the prize, first and foremost, we must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. It really is that simple. How was Paul able to overcome the temptation of self-pity? the temptation of anger or bitterness or resentment? How was he able to endure all the hardships and circumstances and suffering? How was he able to endure all the questions and unknowns? How was he able to press on when everything in his flesh was likely telling him to give up? It's very simple. Paul's primary attention and focus was on one person and one person only. He was focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. He was focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, I wanna remind us all this morning that when you and I focus our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with him, God gives us perspective and he also gives us joy. Paul is talking about that in verses seven through 11 as we looked at last week, the reminder that Paul is saying, listen, God has given me an incredible opportunity to know Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't content to merely know about Jesus as if he was some simply a historical figure. He can know Jesus Christ personally. Let that sink in for just a moment. The very one who loves you and gave his life on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave, you don't just have to know about him, you can know him personally. And Paul understood that. And so Paul said, listen, as I pursue my relationship with Jesus, as I seek to know him, as I seek to grow in him, I want to know him more and more. I want to grow in him more and more. He says so much so that I want to know him literally in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know him even being conformed to his death. I can know Jesus Christ. In other words, it was this focus on Jesus this focus on knowing Christ more and more, this growth that he would have in him that produced joy in his life. Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us of that same importance. The Bible says it this way, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on who? On Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It is as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we focus on the reality that Jesus himself suffered, as we focus on the reality that he himself faced trials and yet through it all, what did Jesus do? Jesus looked at the joy set before him as he's being crucified, as he's hearing the angry crowd cry out, as he's being lied about, as he's being beaten, as he's literally now hanging there on the cross, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is enduring and persevering. Why? Because his mind is focused on the joy that is set before him. It would be through that very sacrifice that we would be restored to a right relationship with him. And what God is calling us to recognize through Paul's words here in Philippians chapter three is simply this. Listen, yes, when we look to Jesus... God allows us to have a focus on the prize. Now, looking to Jesus in the midst of our trials and difficulties does two powerful things in our life. The first thing it does is that it brings humility. It brings humility. Humility is one of those difficult things that so many of us think we don't need or think we don't struggle with, and yet reality, oftentimes by our perspective, we reveal that it's the thing that we need the most. It's easy for us to identify pride in the hearts and lives of other people, but it's so difficult to see it in our own heart and life, is it not? We need humility. 
Notice what Paul says in the statement, Philippians chapter 3, as he's talking about knowing Christ and knowing him fully, he's thinking about that time when he's going to be joined with the Lord. Verse 12, he says this, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Now, Now think of this for just a moment. It's amazing how prior to meeting Jesus, Paul thought pretty highly of himself. We've seen it in recent weeks that Paul had a lot of confidence in his flesh in who he was before Christ. Well, why did he have that confidence? For two reasons. First, when you look on the outside, it can very easily feed your pride. The apostle Paul, before he met Jesus, literally, the Bible says that he was a religious man. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was zealous about keeping the law. He was born in a good godly family. He was circumcised the eighth day. Uh, He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He had a lot of confidence in his flesh. He could look outside and look at all the people around him and feel pretty good about it. Compared to others, he felt pretty good about himself. Not only that, he could look within his own heart. And think, look, man, I I mean, I'm zealous about this. I mean, I I do. I'm trying to honor God. I'm trying to obey his commands. I'm, I'm zealous for God and my motives are pure. Or so he thought. It's amazing how he looked at other people and looked even within his own heart. He felt pretty good about things. But that all changed in Acts chapter nine. Because in Acts chapter nine, the man formerly known as Saul was going down the road to Damascus. He was on his way to find believers, to imprison them, to persecute them. And as he went, guess what happened? He met the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrected Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Saul came face to face with the resurrected Christ, He suddenly no longer had confidence in his flesh. He suddenly no longer had confidence in his motives. He suddenly no longer had confidence in his knowledge. Here's what he realized. In the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy, who is pure, who is true, he knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he needed God's grace. He knew that he was fallen. He knew that he had been deceived. No matter how good his motives were, no matter how good he looked compared to everybody else, in the very presence of Christ, he knew his imperfections. Paul would believe in Jesus, he would soon be baptized and of course be saved and the Lord would call him to the gospel ministry. But please understand, the more we know Jesus, the more we realize our need for Jesus. Paul says, I'm not yet perfect. I haven't yet obtained it. So often we struggle with pride. We can easily recognize issues in other people, but we don't see it in ourselves, but we need to. Reminds me of the couple one day, they'd gone to a marriage conference. A couple had been married for 20 some odd years and they just wanted to go to a conference to spice things up a little bit. And, and they went to the conference and the first lecture that was being given at the marriage conference was a man who was teaching about the importance of remembering all the little things. Remember all the little things about your spouse, what they like, what they dislike. And so then he asked a question. He said, I wanna give a, a test for all the men in the room. He said, men, how many of you can tell me your wife's favorite flower? How many of you men could tell me your wife's favorite flower? flower? And, and as, the, as the man watched and looked, there wasn't a single man in the building who raised their hand. And he thought to himself, well, man, I, I know the answer to that question. I can't believe, these must be horrible husbands. I can't believe they don't know their wife's favorite, favorite flower. I do. So he finally raised his hand with all the confidence in the world. And so finally, the speaker looked over him and said, oh, you're pretty proud about yourself. Why don't you stand up and tell the whole group, what is your wife's favorite flower? He said, oh, that's easy, Pillsbury. good to hear y'all laugh. Glad you're away. Welcome back to the building, all right? 
Listen, it's easy for us to recognize so-and-so, so-and-so, but what God is calling us to recognize, it's not about the person next to me. It's not about these different things. No, it's about my relationship with the Lord and it's about knowing him. And as I knowing him, guess what? It brings about humility. Guess what? Now does it bring about humility. Notice what Paul says. It brings about a hunger. As we look to Jesus, it brings about a hunger in our life. Notice what he says here in verse 12. He says, I haven't become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now time out and pause for a second. That's kind of weird verbiage for our culture today, right? We don't talk that way anymore. What's Paul talking about? Paul is in essence saying, God got a hold of my life for a reason. God called me for a reason. God saved me for a reason. God gifted me for a reason. God got a hold of my life for a reason. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does, does God, this is Alabama terminology, does God got a hold of your life today? That's not gram grammatically correct. I know, who cares? Does God have a hold of your life? Has there been that point? Has there been that moment where literally God spoke to you in such a way that it convicted you of sin and you humbled yourself before him? Has God called you in such a way that he's shown you his ministry and he's shown you his purposes for your life? He's shown you what your giftings are. Has God got a hold of your life? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, God got a hold of my life for a reason. And that reason, I'm gonna lay hold of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put my hands to the plow and not look back. I'm gonna put my hands to the plow and keep pressing forward. God has a reason for me. He has a purpose for me. He has a calling for me. And I'm gonna press on to fulfill it. I'm gonna lay hold of that which God has laid hold of my life for. That's what he's saying. Has God got a hold of your life? Has God called you? What are you doing with the gifts that God's given you? What are you doing with the opportunities that God has given you? Has God put ideas and thoughts and visions and dreams of ministry on your heart? Why wait? God putting people on your heart and mind to be ministering to right now? Why wait? God putting situations in your heart and life where you don't know all the details, but you know that God is calling you to do something. Why wait? What Paul is saying is this, I don't want to lose it. I don't want to miss it. I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to excuse away the calling. No, I'm going to be faithful in the moment. God got a hold of me and I'm going to get a hold of it and press on for Jesus. I want to challenge you this morning. Satan will give you a million reasons to make excuses. Satan will give you a million reasons to put off till later what you know God is calling you to do in the present. But I want to challenge you, church family, brothers and sisters, don't put it off, but say yes. Grab hold of it. Do it for the glory of God and the good of others. The Apostle Paul knew that God had got a hold of his life for the purpose of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so even at great cost and sacrifice, Paul's saying, listen, I'm gonna grab hold of it and I'm gonna persevere. Paul even tells us what that purpose is in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 through 24. Listen to his testimony of what he'd been called to do. He said, the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself 
so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Many of us miss laying hold of the reason that God laid hold of us, frankly, because we count our life too dear to ourselves. The Apostle Paul said, I do not consider any, my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish the course and finish the ministry that God has called me to. We've got to look to Jesus. Secondly, if we are going to have joy in the prize, we have to do a second powerful thing, and that is this. We must let go of the past. We must let go of the past. Notice what he says here in verse 13. He said, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. There are many things, good and bad, about the past that can hinder us from moving forward with the Lord today. There are many things, good and bad, about the past that frankly can deter us and get us in a wrong path, in a wrong direction, and rob us of the things that God is desiring to do in and through our lives today. The fact of the matter is, we've been living through a season where I believe it's all the more important that we need to hear this. When you go through trials and you go through strange seasons, you rarely forget them. In the context of ministry, I still remember very vividly 9-11 and my role there in the campus pastor's office at Liberty at that time. I remember very vividly being in Christiansburg whenever the shooting took place at Virginia Tech. I remember that season of ministry very vividly. Today, we all are living in the midst of COVID-19. Today, God is giving us in some ways an object lesson as we come together, many of us here in the building, many of us online, where we are resuming in person in the worship center gatherings here at Crossland Community Church. You're not likely going to forget these days. In the coming days and coming years, we'll all look back and remember and certain things will have an asterisk beside it, at least in our minds that say <laughs> COVID-19, right? When Paul says forgetting what lies behind, he's not saying that you have the power to just erase it from your mind and suddenly it's gone. The idea of forgetting what lies behind is this. We're not gonna allow the past to have influence over our mind and power over our mind to where it hinders us from what God is calling us to do today. Paul understood this clearly. There are many things of our past that can hinder us from being and doing what God has called us to be and do today. And so let me just kind of highlight three of those things. We don't see them in the text, but I believe certainly it's in the context of the background. And they're significant, frankly, because as a pastor, when it comes to dealing with various challenges in life or in marriage or people's Christian walk, the reality is these three things constantly stand out as hindrances of our past that can hinder us in the present. So let me give you three things, and I want to encourage you to examine your heart and life and see, are these things having a stronghold in my life? Three things. Number one, if we're going to let go of the past, we must begin by letting go of the sins of the past. Letting go of the sins of the past. The sins of our past can easily lead us today to a place of defeat. Here's why. The enemy uses the sins of our past to create a constant culture of shame, which can both paralyze us and rob us of what God wants to do in and through our lives in the present. 
Frankly, if we continually live in that shame, we are likely to never experience our full potential. And if we continually buy into that lie that the enemy puts into our mind, if we continue to live in that shame, the reality is, is that we greatly run the risk of turning back to the person we used to be. Now, I'm not saying that in the context of the gift of salvation, that it's lost or gone. But what I am saying is, is that many people profess faith in Christ. They live their life changed, and yet they still live in such a a burden and such a defeat from the shame of their past that they never walk forward in victory. And what God is wanting us to see is that we got to let go of those things. The Apostle Paul understood that. It would have been very easy for Paul to be defeated by his past. He was a persecutor. He was a murderer of Christians. He was so zealous to get rid of them that he got letters to go all the way to Damascus to bring as many as possible back to put them in prison. That's who he was. And yet 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, he explains all this was true because he was living his life in ignorance. He didn't know who Jesus truly was. He didn't know that he was the Lord and Savior of all. I want to remind us this morning, Paul had to come to the understanding in that moment that he in Christ was no longer defined by his old ways. Instead, he was defined by grace. John chapter four, the woman at the well, you remember the story as Jesus goes to her and he offers or he asks uh, uh, for a drink of water and they begin this conversation. And then he looks at the Samaritan woman and he says, go and tell your husband to come here. And she said, oh, I, I don't have a husband. He said, no, 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 that's not true. You've not only have a husband, you've had five husbands and the man that you're currently with is not your husband. She's convicted in that moment. And the Bible says that she leaves and she goes to the village. And as she's going to the village, she wants to tell them about Jesus, that she's met the Christ, the Savior of the world. She's believed in him. Don't you know the lies and the shame that the enemy would have brought in her mind? They're never going to listen to you. They all know you're a sinner. They know your situation. They know exactly the people that you've been with. They're never going to hear you. She had overcome the sins of the past in order to tell them about Jesus. And of course she did. And many that day believed. What I want you to understand this morning is that when you are in Christ, the Bible makes it clear. We are no longer defined by our old ways. We are defined by God's grace. Second Corinthians chapter five or 16 says it this way. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We sing that song. I am who you say I am. The world may see you as a liar, as a hater. The world may see you as an adulterer. The world may see you as all these different things. But in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, you are cleansed. In Jesus Christ, it's not about your old ways. It's about the grace of God that's been covering your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says it this way. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's right. Let go of the sins of the past. You're not defined by them anymore. You're defined by God's grace. Secondly, you've got to let go. We've got to let go of the sufferings of the past. The sufferings of our past lead us to discouragement and to despair. Satan often uses the sufferings and sorrows in our life to lead us to hurt, to anger, to resentment and bitterness. We know we have a problem holding on to the suffering when frankly, we're continually thinking about that loss. We're thinking about that injustice. We're continually thinking about that circumstance, what so-and-so said to me, what that church did to me, things that I will never get back, things that I've lost along the way. And friend, if we're not careful, that line of thinking will lead us away from the promises of God and frankly, onto a dark and dangerous path. Truth be told, 
The reason I believe that many ministers fall morally in the ministry, beyond sometimes a cold relationship with the Lord over time, there are many hurts and there are many hardships, many sufferings, but the Bible tells us we must learn to let go of those things. No doubt the Apostle Paul experienced these things. He experienced suffering, yes. He had been beaten and he had been stoned. He had been left for dead. He had been shipwrecked, yes. But he also had people within the church, Judaizers that rose up that were constantly pointing people away and he faced all sorts of sufferings. Even the Apostle Paul would say, listen, this guy over here, Alexander the coppersmith, I'm not pointing at you, brother. Alexander the coppersmith, he did me much harm. Yeah, there were sufferings. Paul to let go of them. How do you let go of them when you're hurt? How do you let go of them when you've been done wrong? I think we have to have the same perspective that Joseph had in Genesis 45. You remember the story of Joseph? Man, Joseph, when you read through the story in Genesis, the guy couldn't get a break. His brother sold him into slavery. He's falsely accused. He's imprisoned. And finally, by Genesis 45, God has so worked to move to raise him up to a position of authority there in Egypt. Genesis 45, his brothers have come and, and they've been, they're in the midst of a famine and their family is starving and they come seeking grain. And Genesis 45 comes at this climactic moment as Joseph is now getting ready to communicate with his brothers. And he had, he had, the, he had the authority, he had the opportunity, and some would even say the right to give his brothers, like this is the time for payback. But listen to what Joseph did. What I believe we see of Joseph is this. Even in the midst of the pain and the circumstance and the trials and the unjust suffering, Joseph saw what was happening from God's perspective and not from his own. Genesis 45, the Bible says, Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. They came closer. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. He's comforting them and they're the ones that had sinned against him. Because you sold me here, but I want you to hear this. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You might have meant evil against me. You might have meant harm. Yes, there was suffering. And yes, I didn't understand. But I want you to know I understand today that God did this for a reason. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but who? God. He recognized that God was sovereign over all things. And even in the suffering, God was working together for his good and ultimately for God's own glory as the Israelites were spared. I gotta move on to the, fourth, the third thing real quick. What's the third thing we gotta let go of? We gotta let go of the sins of the past. We gotta let go of the sufferings of the past. But here's the hard one, believers. We've also gotta let go of the successes of the past. Even the victories this is probably the one that is hardest for us to understand. But please understand that the enemy often uses the successes of the past to lead us to disinterest. It's often as we focus on the successes of the past, frankly, that we become proud. Look at what we did. Look at all the great things we did. And in doing so, we begin to excuse our inactivity today. Frankly, in many churches in our country today, let's say pre-COVID days, this has been a weird season, over 90% of churches in America have either plateaued or are declining. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I will guarantee you that one of the reasons that's driving that is because we are content to rest on what was done yesterday 
as opposed to being faithful what God wants to do today. Even in our own Christian walk. Sometimes we get, we get caught up and look, oh, I, rem- oh, I remember in 1990. I remember in 1995. I remember in 2000. I remember last year when I was so close to the Lord and man, it was just so wonderful and so good. But the question that I would challenge us to consider is this. Where's our relationship with the Lord today? It would be easy for us to come to Crosslink here in the next few weeks or months or whatever the time frame is going to be. It'd be easy for us to come here and come back and look and say, man, look at what God did at Crosslink over the past 10 years. Look, look at what God was doing back in December and look at what God was doing in that missions trip last summer. Look at what God was doing pre-COVID. It'd be easy to sit back and talk about the good old days. But can I remind us this morning, it's not really about what God did back in December or last year or even 10 years ago. It's about the fact that God is still working and he's still moving. It's about what God is wanting to do today and what he's wanting to do tomorrow until he calls us home, until he says, well done, until Jesus, the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes back again. What God is calling us to recognize is the successes even of the past cannot be a hindrance to what God is calling us to do today. All the blessings of yesterday, all the ways that God has moved, all the work that he's done, they are merely a foundation for what God wants to do today. Paul in this moment said, I'm forgetting what lies behind. Think of this. Paul had already touched two entire continents for Jesus. The churches had already been pioneered in Philippi, Thessalonica, Ephesus. He'd already been throughout Arabia. He'd already been through the various regions of Galatia. He'd been all over the place. And yet Paul says, I'm not going to sit back and rest in my accomplishments. There's still work for Jesus to be done. John Philip summarized it well. He said, Paul's task was unfinished. He decided there was only one thing to do. Here's what it is. Begin as though nothing at all had already been accomplished. His new plan was to put the past resolutely behind him and set his sights on the new targets ahead. What about you? Are you resting in your accomplishments of yesterday? In your walk with the Lord, are you resting upon an experience that you had years ago? Or is your relationship with the Lord strong and vibrant today? Third thing I want you to see, if we're going to have joy in the prize, if you're still with me, will you say, all right? We gotta look to the Lord. We gotta let go of the past. And here's the third thing, and I'll wrap up quickly. We must labor for the prize. We must labor for the prize Look at the statement in verse 14 through 16. Paul didn't just say, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Here's what he said in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, We don't even have a vision for where we're going and what God is calling us to do. We don't even have a vision of who Jesus is and pressing forward for eternity and envisioning eternity. We've got to press on towards that. We've got to press on towards that. We all understand that if we're not looking ahead, we're going to get off track. I encourage you when you go to exit the driveway in a little bit, exit the parking lot, when you're driving, don't try to drive while you're turning around looking back in the back seat. It's not going to turn out very good for you. You put your hands to the plow and you look back. Luke chapter 9 says you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Driving your car, you can't drive it very effectively when you're looking backward. In our Christian walk and service to the Lord, we're not going to do very well if we're constantly looking back. We're going to get 
be all over the place. Paul says, I press on toward the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, we don't just envision it, we press on for it. Sometimes as Christians, it'd be very easy for us to say, you know what, yeah, heaven's our home. We're gonna be with Jesus in eternity. So that's awesome. I'm gonna sit back and chill and rest and just observe life as it happens. Most of us don't say that, but it's easy to live that way, isn't it? Paul didn't say I just sit back and observe the fact that there's a prize. No, he said, I press on. I like that illustration. When I was in high school and the offer was put on the table, hey, there's a, there's a reward. If you make straight A's in this class for the semester, you're going to do this. I didn't sit back and think, wow, that's incredible. Well, I, I can't wait to come at the end of the semester and claim my prize. That's not how it worked. No, I had to press on in it. I had to pursue it. It became literally my singular focus. That was the thing I wanted more than anything. And so I gave it energy and I gave it time and I gave it attention and I gave it focus. I, I pressed on, if you will. And you know what's crazy? The more I pressed into it, the more that I was focused on it, the more that I did, the better that I did. And the better I did, the more I enjoyed it. And still to this day, while it's not my favorite subject at all, I enjoy certain aspects of it. Why? Because as I focused on the prize and pursued it, it changed my perspective. Paul says, I press on toward the prize. That word press on literally is describing an intense, all-out, zealous endeavor. Think about that. Before Christ, he was zealous about getting rid of Christians. But now that he knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he's pressing on with zeal. He's pressing on with fervor. He's pressing on with passion. God has a calling for me and God has a prize in heaven for me. And I don't want to just sit back and wait. I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to be faithful to do what God's called me to do. That word pressing on literally envisioned an athlete that was in a race. And as that athlete was in a race, they were giving everything they had. Every stride was given in that effort. Their, 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 tense, their, their face was tense. They're leaning forward. The finish line is there. And they're doing all they can to cross the finish line, to win the race, to run it well. Paul is saying, like the athlete who gives his all and leaves it all on the track, I want to run, I want to press on, I don't want to leave anything in the tank, I'm gonna give it all for Jesus. That's what he's saying. It'd be easy for us to end there and say, wow, look at Paul's devotion to Jesus. Look at his determination, but please understand, Paul did not pin these words of his own accord. The Holy Spirit gave them to him. Paul was not given these words so that we would be amazed by his dedication to the Lord. Paul would pin these words to remind us of our calling to run the race, to run it well, and to run to win. That's why he says in verse 15, as many of you are perfect. He's not saying perfect in the sense that we're sinless. He's talking about those who are complete in Christ. As many as are perfect have this same attitude. You know what Paul's saying? I love this image. 
It's like Paul is writing to the believers of Philippi. He's writing for our benefit today. And it's it's like he's looking at us. Here he is. He's been running his race. He's been running it well. Remember, he's in prison. He doesn't know when he's going to die. He doesn't know how much longer he has. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, I've been running in such a way that whatever God gives me to do, I want to do. If it's writing letters, I'm going to write letters. If it's encouraging, it's encouraging. If I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray. I'm going to do all that I can for Jesus. But here's what I want you to know. I'm here to cheer you on. I'm writing so that you will run your race, so that you will run well, so that you will let go of the things in your past, so that you will press forward. Because please understand, our goal is still the same. We want to run well. We want to run for the prize. We want to run for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like Paul, the coach, is looking at us and he is saying, I want you to run so well that you pass me. I want you to keep going. I want you to keep pursuing. Don't look back. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't fear. Don't give the excuses. You press on for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's a prize that awaits those who do. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says it well. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in him. Paul would get to the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7-8, through 8, and he would humbly conclude, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But notice, He didn't stop there. It'd be easy for us to say, well done, Paul. Absolutely, there's a reward in store for you. But Paul would look back at us and say, and this reward is not only for me, but it is also to all who have loved his appearing. Let me ask you, what about you? Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? This morning, you can be religious. You can go to church, even with a face mask, and still not be saved. A relationship with Christ begins the very moment you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Today, you can be saved. If you're listening at home right now, you've never believed in Jesus, today, you can be saved. For those of you who know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not known or defined by your former ways, but by God's grace. I want to encourage you today, let go of the things of the past and walk in joy and victory and freedom that we have in Jesus. But finally, let's not live our life passively just letting the time pass. God has a calling for every believer Ultimately, that calling is to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That calling is to love the Lord our God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's not neglect and forget the reason that God got a hold of us. Let's be faithful to fulfill it, knowing by his grace that there's a prize in store. It will be worth it all when we meet Jesus face-to-face. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.